if you are a bank who is not progressive in how you maintain your customers and grow your customers, you're going to get left behind. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. James, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you guys coming into our office and letting me do this. I'm excited to start your story a little bit. I think it'll kind of work really well in a kind of sequential narrative fashion. You were part of a startup. The startup got acquired. You spent some time with the acquiring company. And then in that kind of intervening two years post-acquisition, I'd imagine we're either setting the groundwork for or considering or looking for the next move. And it ended up being the founding of your consulting firm, Steel Bridge Labs or Steel Bridge Consulting? Steel Bridge Consulting. So... Talk us through a little bit from that acquisition onwards, what you were doing to set yourself up to be successful when you took that leap out into starting your own thing. Yeah, absolutely. It actually began before then, believe it or not. Coming out of college, I went to Penn State. I started at Accenture and sort of cut my teeth on what it meant to be a management consultant. And at that time, I was within their capital markets practice focused entirely on private equity, working with the largest private equity firms in the world. And what I realized, a number of things had occurred at Anderson Consulting, which again became Accenture. We became a public company. And the track to what I thought being a partner at a management consultancy was a little bit different at that point in time as we were going public. So I decided that I wanted to take a little bit of a different career path and go join a startup, which at the time, the company was a fintech before we called it a fintech. It was just a technology product that focused in financial services. And so that was a great experience for me because I got to taste what it meant to work for a smaller company and to work for a founding team. Jose Sinai, who was the founder and his family, ran the business, but a founding team that was very passionate about what it meant to grow a company from the ground up. And so in my career, I look at it as I had two sort of flavors of how the world works from a business environment, one very large corporate experience, and then the second very small family-driven startup that grew from one to, by the time we, by the time we sold the business, about 125 people. And what I realized at that time was that my objective in my career was to take the entrepreneurial route, but still be able to work with some of the most world-renowned private equity firms out there. And so after we sold the business, I spent a couple of years, like you mentioned, at the acquirer, which was SunGuard Data Systems, which is now FIS, and decided that after two years, I wanted to go out on my own. And at the time, it was 2008. And you can imagine anybody trying to start a business, especially in financial services in 2008, it had to be a little bit crazy. <laughs> but I didn't see it that way. I saw it as, look, I can take the experience that I had working at Accenture, the experience that I had working at Investran bring that together and provide a unique offering to the private capital industry. So private equity, venture capital, private equity, real estate, and related assets. And it turned out that it worked and that my very first client was JP Morgan. Very quickly, about nine months later, Goldman Sachs came calling and hired us. And we were a team of one, which... Still uh, use the we though. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. We were a team of one. So at that time, I had to very quickly ramp up my staff. And so I brought in my younger brother, who was our first employee, and then brought in Todd Herring, who's our, my partner and runs our consulting services practice, and then we grew from there. And so I think we caught the industry at the right time, where people realized within private equity 
that we needed to institutionalize the business. So long story short is I draw on the experiences that I had at Accenture as well as a small startup to make a decision to go out on my own and become an entrepreneur and build a consulting company. For that two years post-acquisition though, it, is there an element to which there might have been an earnout and you had to stick around? Or what, what's also fascinating to me is people who maybe have an intention of, I know I'm going to go in an entrepreneurial direction. I know I'm going to do this or that. You can bring, it, when you have an intention, when you have an end goal in mind, you can bring, you can open your filter so that whether you're in a startup or a big company or somewhere in between, you're absorbing what will be helpful to you when you eventually go out on your own. To, to get Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan as clients, you have to have some degree of legibility into the workings of a very large organization right. that you might not necessarily be able to get if you were exclusively in small companies. That's correct. Yeah. And for me, my entire career was working with these large financial t institutions that really set the mark for how finance, banking, capital markets worked. And so I was able to draw upon the experience that I had working at Accenture, working at a small startup who was already in these large organizations. I was able to bring that experience in that network, frankly. I mean, it comes down to relationships. All business comes down to relationships. I think we know that. I was able to bring those together and pitch JP Morgan initially and say, look, here's what I can provide to, to you as a business, and here are the changes you need to make let me help you out. And it turned out that a couple of the folks that were fairly senior within their private equity group believed in what I was able to provide for them, and they brought me in. And very quickly, word got out that I was out there doing these services, and that's how Goldman came calling. So absolutely was able to draw on it. Why the two years? I mean, yeah, there was a bit of a lockup, but it was just more about continuing to attempt to grow what we had just sold to SunGuard. And actually, the founder, who was a bit of a mentor to me, he and I were working together to figure out if there were other sort of acquisitions and roll-ups that we could do with products that were related to the product that we were working on, and he just sold to SunGuard. And it turned out we just couldn't move quick enough for me, frankly, and that I felt like my career would be, would be better spent doing this on my own and trying to build something. And I look back now, we're 11 years in, actually, in about a week. Congrats. So it's pretty exciting, yeah. And it's been, a, it's been a wonderful journey and one that I will obviously never regret, the best professional decision I've ever made in my life. But look, being an entrepreneur, as everybody knows, is not easy. There are ups and downs. There are great years where you're just super stoked. <laughs> and then there are years where it's really tough and you have to dig deep to figure out how to make this thing work and keep going. And I would say, not that we're getting into this yet, and everybody will know, we, we now are doing venture investing. And we made the partners at Steelbridge Consulting made a collective decision that we're going to go down that route. And that's brought its own series of successes and challenges and so forth. Is there, as you look back on 11 years, is there a moment or a particular time in which that really looked like the lowest point or the part where you had maybe the most doubt, the most frustration and pain? Yeah, you know what? Consulting is an interesting business. And it's one of those things where you're not selling a product, you're not selling a widget, you're selling services. And so what I say, is there a moment that I can look back and say, this is the lowest? No, I don't think I have one of those moments. Fortunately, we've been pretty steady. I mean, there have been a couple of tough years. Look, it's business. But as long as you can persevere and get through that and build a team, which is the thing I'm, I think I'm most proud of is building this team that we have, build a team of people that just want to get things done, you'll get through it. And you will hang on until that, that 
break in the in in the challenges that you're facing occurs and you're able to continue to move forward. So no no moment of this is the lowest point, but absolutely countless challenges and countless mistakes, frankly, that if I could do it a little differently, I would have done some things a little differently. But at the same time, here we are 11 years later and we're still running strong. And that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? We can read about it in the book at the knowledge, we can listen to the podcast, what have you, but the wisdom of falling on your face a couple of times. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, it happens. And if you can shake those off and keep going, that's what will allow you to be successful. So that's what we all strive to do. So another question that I have about the consulting front is the scaling of a consulting business when in the early days, like it's very much your connections. It's very much your track record, regardless of the name on the front of the business, a deep tie to you as the individual and what you've done and what people know you to be capable of doing. Right. So when you think about scaling a consulting business, you can raise your hourly rate, you can raise revenues that way. But in terms of actually being able to fulfill the obligations that your clients might be asking of you, what have you learned about that process over the last 11 years? When you're a boutique consultancy like us, it's a very fine line of when do you bring resources on versus sell business, really. It's that paradigm that you need to balance. And I would say that's the thing we've learned. We had a period of time where we ramped up and we had a few people on the bench. When you work in Accenture and they have a thousand people on the bench, no yeah. big deal. But when you're a boutique and you have three people on a bench, well, that draws on you. And so there were times where we did that. There were times like in the beginning, as an example, where we sold Goldman Sachs. I'm a team of one. <laughs> so didn't have the right people in place to allow us to grow. So I would say the thing that I've learned is the art of balancing resources. And one thing that makes us unique actually in our sector, meaning in the private capital sector, providing management consulting services, as you look at our competitors versus us, all of our employees are W-2 employees. So we're committed to them. They are committed to us. Finding quality resources is key. So some of our competition will go out and hire 1099 car contractor, and that's fine. And there have been cases where we've done that, but our primary growth strategy is bring people in because we want to build that family network, that boutique feeling, and make sure that we put good people that we trust on our clients' projects. So I run an agency and there's a similar meme with an agency world of like this teeter-totter and art more so than science is precisely the metaphor of, oh my gosh, we have all this business, we need to go hire people. Oh my gosh, we hired all these people, we need to go find business. And you're kind of like in a constant state of constant unbalance. Yeah, constant. It's, it's one of the things that keep me up, keeps me up at night, yeah. <laughs> for sure. So you mentioned this buy-in that you've gotten from partners and yep. this new, this subsequent chapter for Steelbridge. Once the consulting business was off the ground, and starting to do the investing into fintech startups. What prompted that? What was the light bulb that came on that said, there's a real opportunity here, right. given not only our network, but our expertise and our access to capital? Yeah, I would say it's been the most exciting part of what we've done at Steelbridge in general. You know, we looked at ourselves five years ago, let's call it, and we said, look, we're doing well as a consulting business. We're growing, we're adding staff, but at the end of the day, just like a doctor or just like an accountant, an attorney, if you're not working and billing hours, you're not making money. And the nature of business and the reason we all get up in the morning and come to work is to make money and provide for our families and friends and so forth. And so my partners and I looked at each other and said, how do we create wealth for us as partners and our employees? How do we create jobs for those that we think have amazing skills, but need a little bit of direction. How do we help our community? I mean, we're a huge Pittsburgh-focused business, and we love our community. I mean, we bought this building that we're sitting in right now and completely renovated it to make, a, make it our home. 
And so all of those things came together and we said, well, look, we have a few different options. We can go and become an administration business that administers the back office of our clients. And we do a little bit of that, but we didn't want to do that because our consulting team actually provides services to who would become our competitors if we did that. So we said, no, we don't want to do that. We said we can become a software company and build a product. And a lot of consulting companies do this where they say, I see a real problem in the industry, so I'm going to build software to solve that. And so then they become a hybrid consulting, hybrid software business. We didn't want to do that because we have a pretty solid reputation, I should say, in my opinion, a stellar reputation in the industry. And we didn't want to confuse the industry on who is Steelbridge. Are they a software company now or are they a consulting company? So we quickly um, nixed that idea. And then we said, well, look, we're working around private equity firms and venture capital firms every single day. And we're helping them do what they do better. We're helping them raise money. We're helping them market themselves better. We're helping them make better decisions on the investment side. Why are we not contemplating making investments ourselves? And then we said to ourselves, well, look, okay, that's an interesting idea. What do we know? Well, we know fintech. We've been working around fintech our entire careers. Every one of the partners, many of our staff have 15 to 20 plus years of experience in this sector. And so very quickly, we were able to say yes, as a group of partners, that we're going to set aside some of the, we'll call it retained earnings that we would be able to distribute and put that to work into these investments. And so Steelbridge Laboratories was born in 2016. We immediately did three deals. They were three deals that were sort of simmering. We kind of got them going before we formally started the lab. And since then, we've done four more deals and we're on the cusp of doing two or three more here in the next quarter, I'll call it. So it was just sort of the stars align situation where we thought that we have the right experience given our perspective of trying to build companies, try to, trying to create organizations that operate efficiently, that can scale, et cetera, and use those experiences and that talent and so forth to put the work in these fintech businesses. Gotcha. Now, as you fund these startups, is are there limited partners, any outside capital taken in to accomplish this, or is this purely driven through the retained earnings from the consulting business? Yeah, so initially it was purely through the retained earnings. The partners put a, put a an amount of money aside to invest in these businesses. Recently, we did open up what we're calling an investment vehicle, where we've got some outside investors to join us. They're not limited partners. They are actually members of an LLC that we're members of as well. And we collectively have now pulled our money to put the work into our businesses. What that has done for us is a couple of things. One, obviously, it gives us more access to capital. We're not talking a tremendous amount. Basically, they, the investors are matching what we as partners are putting in. So we doubled our ability to invest a certain amount of money into these businesses. But secondly, and as importantly, is some of these folks, a couple of them are strategic in terms of their interest in fintech as well. Mm. And so what we've done for them is obviously we di diversify their investments. They've been able to look at seven companies before they gave a dollar to these seven companies to sort of vet the businesses. But then also we're going to put that money and our money to work across eight more. So collectively we are going to invest as a group of investors in 15 businesses. So the short answer is both partner money and external money, but they're not LPs per se. What that allows us to do, and I'll pause here in a moment, is frankly, we as partners have been consultants or fundraisers or technologists our entire lives. We've never been deal professionals. We are now able to sort of build a track record, build a group of companies that we believe in and then we think will win. And then once we do that track record is established and we'll see where things go in the future. So 
to translate maybe a little bit of that is saying that if you have the track record, then in a future fundraising campaign where you might be trying to raise a larger fund, you can point to like, hey, we've actually successfully done this investing before versus other characters where they might just be, hey, I've got ideas and I think you'll have a good time. Precisely. So another question to that end, among the many challenges of investing in early stage companies, one is deal flow. Now, on, on one side of the coin, you have a deep bench of connections within the world of finance that can open doors for you and maybe friends saying, hey, take a look at this and what have you. But as you're establishing a brand as something where the founder might take themselves to you, say like, that's someone I want to be in business with. What, what have you, how, how have you thought about accomplishing that? And then also, I guess, in, in union with that question, and I hate asking two questions at once, but that's how my brain's working right now. We're in Pittsburgh. There is headquarters for two very large banks downtown. And relative to other metropolises of that size, that is different than most areas. So how do those factors play into the deal flow that you see with the fintech incubator? Yeah, deal flow is absolutely one of the most difficult things to get right. I won't say it's for us at our stage, since we're not a high volume shop, it's not pain point in that we can't see enough deals. It's always about seeing deals that are actually ones we believe in. So if we look at 200 deals a year, there may only be a handful that we think will survive. So I think to answer your two questions, one, for us, it's again, not about getting the deals in front of us. It's about getting the right deals. And then when we get the right deals, how do we make sure that we can come to terms with that business? That's important. And I think for Steelbridge Laboratories, we're much different than our peers in the industry, meaning that we consider ourselves an incubator, a technology incubator, but we also consider ourselves a quasi-venture capital firm. Because with traditional incubators or accelerators, they give a small amount of money, especially in the accelerator space, a small amount of money, get some equity in return, and they go through the cohorts or the companies within the group that are going through the curriculum, go through three to six months of work. Incubators tend to be public entities or nonprofits or whatever the case may be and provide space and some mentorship and so forth. We feel like we do a hybrid of all of that. And we're also very hands-on with our companies, meaning that we're not just mentoring and putting them through a curriculum. We are literally rolling up our sleeves and working with them day in and day out. And it's a balance when you do that because you can't take on 15 companies that you're working with that intimately as a small group of investors, if you will. So we've done it in a way where we've got an investment mandate where 50% of our businesses will be very hands-on with, and then 50%, it's more of a traditional venture capital type investment where we'll put money into the company and let them run their business because they've already got an established management team or, or an established tech team or whatever the case may be. Gotcha. So that's even part of the evaluation before you'd make the decision to invest is do they kind of fit in the bucket one or bucket two? Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. So, so I think to your first question, by providing the type of services we provide, which is fairly unique, and let me be clear here, when we provide hands-on support, it's not just at the C-level. It is the developers. We have developers down in our Miami office who will write the code for these products that we're building. And so that's what's really different. There are others out there that do that, do that, but they tend to maybe outsource the development to an overseas organization. That's not the way we work. It's our people sitting in our Miami office that are focused on these products. So that's one thing I think that allows us to be attractive as Steelbridge Laboratories to our companies. And then to your point about the two two banks that we have here in the city. Yeah, absolutely critical. And it's something that when I placed the business here in Pittsburgh 11 years ago, 
I knew that having them here and having the universities that we have here would allow me to have access to talent from a resource perspective, but also to a certain degree, credibility, being a finance business in Pittsburgh, a little bit odd, but really not when you peel back the onion and you peel back the onion and you recognize what we have here in our city. So massively important. We know the folks over at Numo, the incubator that's part of PNC, amazing group. They've got deep reach within PNC Bank, and we think they're going to do some pretty great things. So we're proud to be part of that fabric of Pittsburgh, financial services, fintech, and then really just the general venture capital wave that we're riding, which is outside of fintech, if you will, and robotics and industry and so forth. And it would seem that there's multiple layers to that reality of being here in Pittsburgh, which is you could see a founder come out of one of those banks. They see the problem intimately. They can't get the change that they want to create from within the organizations that they leave to go create the thing. You have the ability to sell or pilot or beta test into some of those banks with some of these early financial products. But then the other question is, where is the talent coming from to build out that team? So, okay, the founder's here, the funding's here. You now need to build the team, just like you said, building the team for your company was so important. And people that might be looking for a change, just as you did from a large to a small company, can come effectively right down the street and experience that. Yeah, and that's exactly what we want to do. We want to give them the opportunity to get their idea off the ground. We love ideas that are on a whiteboard. Like, we love it. Because then we can sit with them and sort of help morph that idea into a real product. But I think to your point, and I want to kind of touch on that for a second, about team, that's our biggest struggle here in the city of Pittsburgh, in my opinion. Meaning we've got great banks, we've got great universities, but we need more people. My brother and I, who's one of our partners, always talk about the, what we're calling the 10,000 factor, which is we need 10,000 more professionals in this city of Pittsburgh to work in all of these businesses that we're building, in all of this real estate that's going up here in the Strip District. We need to fill these buildings. And I think if we as a city of Pittsburgh can get 10,000 more working individuals in this region I think that's when we're really going to put ourselves on the map. And you hear it not just from me, you hear it from the Audrey Russo at the Technology Council. and That's what her speech was about, yeah. Exactly. And Sean Sebastian at Birchmere Ventures, he talked about that. I mean, there's a lot of us that recognize we need more of these talented individuals. So it's a situation where the private sector, us, need to provide facilities like this and organizations like this that can help bring talent in, but also the public sector. We need our nonprofit organizations and affinity groups in the region to do what they're doing and the mayor and the government to help out in the URA and do what they're doing. We all need to come together to make sure we're trying to bring more talent into our city. Certainly. Now, flipping that on its head, you've had connections into JP Morgan, into Goldman Sachs. When we think finance, Wall Street is ground zero, part of the term there, but that is where the center of the financial universe resides, at least on this planet. So when it comes to interacting with founders or other characters here in Pittsburgh, to some degree, I would imagine, given your expertise, given your time in the industry, your ability to be a translator of sorts to what those large institutions and what that side of the world really cares about. How do you, like, can you give us maybe an example or speak to bringing that experience, bringing that perspective to a founder or to a team that might not necessarily have that same experience. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to trying to sell into these big organizations, nine times out of 10, they're not looking for that next sort of slick product, if you will. Silicon Valley, absolutely. FinTech, early stage investors in New York and Boston, sure. But when you're talking about these big banks that sit on Wall Street and that need to change to keep up with these 
younger, I'll use the word slick again, slick products, they're looking for, okay, well, what do I do to ring out the inefficiency? What do I do to ring out the cost that I have within the business? And so it's almost like they want to solve the boring problem because what they do well, but they need to continue to evolve in order to compete to keep the market share and to grow, well, to keep their customers and then to grow their customer base. And so I think the important thing is what I would say to the entrepreneurs that are out there, find a boring problem. And if you can get yourself into one of these organizations and prove that you can solve their boring problem, that's where you, when, when you can scale across the JP Morgans and the Morgan Stanleys and the cities and the Wells and all of those other large organizations. So it's not about selling them the cool product. It's about selling them something that is a tried and true problem that you as an entrepreneur and maybe somebody that sat in that organization in the past know is a problem and can solve. And do you have an inherent competitive advantage when you've sat there and despite there being maybe even tens of thousands of people in that organization, there aren't that many people who actually intimately see that problem and have that vantage point. And that's part of where the advantage Well, it, absolutely. If you look at a few of the founders that we work with in, in CEOs, as well as other companies that we'll look at, it actually tends to be, when you think about fintech and you think about venture capital, you think about very young people. That's not the case. It tends to be folks who are a little bit older, maybe in the latter half of their career, who've been in those organizations, seeing the problems and saying, look, I know I can solve this and I have the network and I have the knowledge and all of that good stuff. So, yeah. Last question, then we'll just kind of ask our standard wrap-up questions. I read a report. Are you familiar with CB Insights? Sure. So they do a ton of reporting and breakdowns and infographics about all different parts of the startup scene. Yep. And one of the ways that just as an outsider was helpful for me was to see a lot of the fintech uh, innovations or the companies that might be familiar to you, particularly on the consumer facing side, as the unbundling of a bank. So because of the constraints of analog or just momentum, a lot of these banks rolled up all these different services, all these different offerings. And when one startup was able to be the specialist, able to apply digital techniques, modern technology, and just hyper-focus on that problem, they're able to provide not just a moderately better solution, but an, perhaps an order of magnitude better solution. Right. We said actually before we turn the mics on that you start with evaluating the team when making an investment. And I think we've touched on team pretty well here, but as you kind of move down your chart of things that you're evaluating through, do you see it through that lens? Is that, does that resonate with you? And is that an important consideration for you when you make an investment decision? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you think about that side of the world, consumer-facing products, and you think about all the banks that are out there, it's a land grab. That's what this is. And if you are a bank who is not progressive in how you maintain your customers and grow your customers, you're going to get left behind. You look at Goldman Sachs as an example. Never in the history of Goldman Sachs did they get into retail banking. Yeah. Here comes Marcus. So now they're in the retail banking space and they're providing really cool product through Marcus to their consumers. So they're gaining all these new customers that were once at maybe a different legacy consumer banking organization. So we do resonate with that. And we think that the future of finance, especially for the regional and the community banks, is they need to find products that they are able to easily integrate into their organizations. And so you have the Stonecastle or Q2s of the world. You have Fiserv, but they're not necessarily as progressive. But you have a number of organizations that are creating these banking as a service offerings that the community banks are using as the back end of their organization. Well, these organizations that are supporting them are partnering with fintech. 
for example, we invested in one called Numula that is a millennial family-focused consumer banking platform. And what we're doing with Numula is we're white labeling it to offer two banks that allow them to use that product to engage with families that have children. And what makes it unique is it's not just about engaging kids in finance, it's educating them along the way, and it's educating them in a gamified fashion. Well, that right there becomes a service offering that a bank can go and roll out very quickly and engage those families. Well, when you engage that family, that's great, but you engage that child at a young age. Think about, I don't know you, but for me as an example, and I'm sure many people, I still have an account at the first bank my parents put. Same. Yeah, exactly. So put those dollars into it, and that will happen going forward. And we think Numula is an avenue for something like that. So that right there is a perfect example of banks bundling up these specialized service offerings, making them look like theirs, making sure they all work well together, but using their infrastructure that's in place. Very cool. James, I've learned a lot from you. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Sure. For folks that want to learn more and connect, find out more about SteelBridge, what digital coordinates can we provide? Yeah, we can have them call us directly anytime, (laughs) but actually they can check us out on the web at steelbridgelabs.com. Obviously, we're on Twitter and LinkedIn and so forth as well. So yeah, check us out at steelbridgelabs.com or give us a call. As with you, James, at the end of each interview, I want to give the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Absolutely. I would love to. So I think, as we all know, October is National Breast Cancer Month. And so I think the actionable suggestion that I'll make to the audience is use one of these fintech platforms that are out there to donate to to, to the National Cancer Society and to breast cancer. I think it's a an amazing cause. And Unfortunately, something that's a challenge that we as humans deal with, and I think there are many entrepreneurs out there that have created platforms to make that donating easier, and I think we all need to take advantage of it. So that's my action and my charge that you head out there, use a platform, download it, pledgeit.com as an example is a great one, and others that that will allow you to give to a good cause. Beautiful. Well, thank you for the great challenge, and thank you for coming on the podcast today. Appreciate you guys having me on. We just went deep with James Haluszczyk. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Thank you for watching the end of my interview james i'm curious what is your favorite fintech product your favorite service venmo your banking app something you use that makes your personal finance easier let me know in the comments below